0: We're in a series called Finding Jesus in Exodus, and we're learning to read the Bible with Christ as the interpretive center. Uh, we spent several weeks in finding Jesus in Genesis, now we're to the book of Exodus. And although we're talking about them as different series, of course they're really just the same series because if you look at the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, uh, the biblical story just picks right up uh, right there. And so let's take a few moments to get caught up in the story. Uh, The nation of Israel are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The family of Jacob, who himself is renamed as Israel, came to Egypt during a great famine. Uh, Now, Jacob's son Joseph was second in command in all of Egypt, and he was respected and revered. And so for many years, uh, the Israelites lived in Egypt as a free people. However, the time did come. Several years later, when Pharaoh, a Pharaoh arose, who did not know or remember Joseph. And this Pharaoh saw a growing number of Israelites and felt threatened. So he decided to enslave them and then put this labor force to work in expanding and building the Egyptian empire. So when we come to the Exodus narrative, uh, we, we kind of hone in on one particular character, one figure, that is Moses. Uh, We learned a little bit about his story last week, uh, that the Pharaoh was threatened, so threatened by these Israelites that he ordered that firstborn Israelite boys be thrown into the river. There was one daring mother, uh, however, who did that, but in an act of resistance put her her baby in a, a, a basket made of reeds. So the baby floated down the river, was discovered by Pharaoh's own daughter. That baby was the person we come to know as Moses. So Moses grew up in the privileged class in the courts of Pharaoh while his own people were beaten and abused. He wakes up to this fact. He becomes outraged, kills an Egyptian, is caught in the crime, then escapes to the countryside of Midian where he encounters God in the burning bush. And so last week what we talked about is it wasn't the particular bush uh, that made it burning. It was that Moses awakened to the presence of God. And we took that to mean, with, in finding Jesus, we, we saw this burning bush in Exodus as a precursor to the incarnation. Because the divine took up residence in the bush, filled it with divine presence. And in Christ, God has taken up residence in humanity. Uh, and then through the ascension and through uh, his death, has filled all of creation with his presence. Ha! Isn't that cool? Uh, so we found Jesus in Exodus. Uh, that's where we were last week. So, But after this burning bush incident, or during this, God tells, God tells Moses to confront Pharaoh and demand that the Israelite people are freed. Uh, and when you start seeing the drama of all of this, you recognize uh, that it's no wonder that Hollywood has drawn from this story uh, as source material, because there is a lot going on here. So what follows is a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh in an event that we have come to know as the Exodus. And the main thing that I want you to understand this morning is that the Exodus event is the dominant picture of salvation in the Old Testament. The Exodus event is the dominant picture of salvation in the Old Testament. And because of this, because it's the dominant picture of what salvation is and what salvation means and what salvation looks like, then New Testament authors kind of are informed and their understanding of salvation is shaped by the Exodus. Because remember, with the New Testament authors, what we know as the New Testament authors, when they had the scriptures, it was only the Hebrew scriptures. And so they were drawing upon the Old Testament and saw this picture of the Exodus and then began to talk about salvation in Christ in terms of, and using imagery of, the Exodus. Which is to say, if you want to understand how the Bible frames salvation, you have to understand the Exodus event. Okay, so we're going to be considering this event as a whole, uh, and it's told in Exodus chapter 5 through 15. So let's open our scriptures and just read it all. Just kidding. Uh, no, we're going to be looking at a few passages, uh, but if you wanted to read the whole story, it's about 10 chapters long, uh, and it's a, it's a great story, well worth your read. But let's, let's begin um, with Exodus chapter 5, the first nine verses. And as we've been doing throughout our kind of Old Testament series, we're in the New Living Translation. So Exodus chapter 5, uh, the first nine verses. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh they told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh, and who is the Lord? And Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, so I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared, so let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we "'Don't, he will kill us with a plague or with a sword.' Now Pharaoh replied, "'Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? "'Get back to work. "'Look, there are many of of your people in the land, "'and you are stopping them from their work.' Now that same day, the Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen, "'Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. "'Make the people get it themselves, "'but still require that the same number of bricks as before.' Do not reduce the quota. They are lazy. This is why they are crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, The Exodus event is filled with some of the most fantastic imagery and images and events in all of the Bible. Uh, When Moses goes to Pharaoh saying uh, that the Lord has commanded that the Israelite people be released, Pharaoh isn't having it. (laughs) He basically laughs at Moses and said, who is this God anyway? In fact, Pharaoh is so upset at the proposition of freedom for his labor force, uh, that when confronted with his cruelty, he simply says he simply doubles down on his cruel, on his cruelty. Uh, he's confronted. He's saying, "Hey, look, these people are enslaved. They need to be freed." Pharaoh does not want to lose this labor force, this expand, this this labor force that allows for expansion of Egypt. And in fact, says, "No, I'm going to actually double down on everything. Make them work harder, and that will kind of quiet down this this." Uh, maybe be budding revolution, right? So, in other words, Pharaoh's mind was not changed. His position was only solidified further. In fact, the way it's framed, Pharaoh seems rather unimpressed by the god of an enslaved people. After all, he was the king over the world's greatest power. And he had the perceived favor of a whole pantheon of so-called gods. I want to say that again. The way the the story is framed is Pharaoh seems unimpressed by the God of the enslaved people. And why would he be impressed anyway? Because he's the king of the most powerful nation on earth and has the perceived favor of a whole pantheon of so-called gods. So the question is simply, how could this God of the enslaved people be important? Well, the truth is Pharaoh was about to find out who just who this God is. So as Pharaoh hardened his heart and doubled down on his commitment to enslave the Israelites, a series of 10 plagues fall upon Egypt. The waters of the Nile River turn to blood. Uh, Then the frogs. Right. And you can think about which one is grossest to you. Uh, Then the frogs, then the gnats, then flies, then livestock is diseased, then there's boils on their skin, then there's hail, then locusts, then darkness, then death of the firstborn. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) This This is terrible stuff, right? And it's filled with some of the most fantastic images and imagery and events in all of Scripture. And certainly there's no doubt that this section of Scripture raises a whole number of questions, Uh, Did this really happen? How could God do this? Did God really do it? Were there other things going on? Uh, Was this kind of all circumstantial? Like all sorts of these kind of questions boil up to the front of our minds. Uh, And if we focus on the question of did this really happen, it's really a question about the historicity of these events. And, And some, perhaps many, will easily accept that God did these things directly by suspending the laws of nature and he performed these miracles. Others will try to explain how natural phenomenon can occur that will lead to such events, which is to say that God sort of worked within the laws of the natural order to bring about these events, right? Uh, You could say that there's an algae that grows in the Nile, that if it gets out of control, it will appear to turn the water red. Uh, You could talk about locust migration events. You could do all sorts of things to try to say that all of these things are sort of happening within the natural phenomenon, but God is working within the laws of nature, Um, however, I would say, uh, that whether we sort of just say, yep, God did these directly, he suspended the laws of nature and, uh, is the responsible agent for these, or where we say whether like sort of God maybe stepped in, but worked within the laws of nature to make these events come about, uh, I would say this as with all ancient texts fixating on modern kind of questions and explanations like these, uh, don't really help us in understanding the text theologically. Uh, what they help us do, in large part, is miss the point. <laughs> uh, so we want we to, instead of, like, instead of putting on our modern glasses and beginning to like really focus on all the sorts of like, uh, historical, scientific questions that we would have of this text, let's just accept the text as it's presented to us and try to seek maybe to understand how our ancient brothers and sisters would have understood this and why they're writing it this way. And so more important to consider than all of our modern questions is how the text is constructed and the content of uh, this, um, the content or how it would come across to the first audience. Uh, now, let me give a quick side note here. I often talk about context, 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 right? And this is so important to understand how it meant, what it meant to the first audience, Uh, I want to make sure that we understand that I'm not saying that this is the only thing the text can ever mean, right? So I'm not saying that each biblical text has one meaning and it's whatever it meant to the original audience. I'm not saying that. I'm saying starting with the original audience and understanding how they would have understood it is a great starting point for how it can then make sense in our own lives and in our own world. Are you with me? Okay, so context is important, but it's not the same as saying this text has one meaning. Okay, all right, so there, side note, all over. Now, so what is clear then from these passages, the plague narrative, is this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is humiliating the Egyptian gods and goddesses in whom Pharaoh had placed his trust that 's the point of the plagues. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is humiliating the Egyptian gods and goddesses in whom Pharaoh had placed his trust. So the plagues are not God acting out of vengeance. The plagues are not God throwing a temper when pharaoh doesn 't obey. The plagues serve like as a literary function, and their purpose in Exodus, the, the purpose they serve is to expose the cultural gods of Egypt as false gods who are not mighty to save and have no real power over the realm of creation that they claim to run. Are you with me, right? So, for example, Hapi was the Egyptian god over the Nile. Churning the Nile to blood was a way of symbolically slaying or exposing this false god. Heket, the goddess of fertility, was depicted with The head of a frog. So a plague of frogs is a way of exposing that Heket doesn't really control fertility. The sun god Ra was known or perceived as being on Pharaoh's side. So when the sun is blotted out and you have the darkness, this is a way of saying that to be on the side of Pharaoh and the side of empire is to oppose the way of Yahweh. You with me? Right? So these are just some examples. Now, some of you are like, give me the rest. This is so interesting. Let's map all 10 of the plagues to 10 sort of false gods. You can't do that kind of direct mapping, right? So you can't do that direct mapping. But the overwhelming message of the, of the passage as a whole is that cultural gods of Egypt are exposed as false. And that Yahweh, the God of the enslaved, is revealed as the one true God who rules over all the cosmos, Okay, my wife gave me an amen, but no one else. Okay, that's all right. Thank you, Amy. I will keep going. (laughs) So that's the plagues. You with me? We got a lot of ground to cover. I told the worship team this might be a 90-minute sermon, but don't worry, I have shortened it to 30 minutes. Okay, so Exodus chapter 12 then. Exodus chapter 12. Let's read like verses 6 and 7. And then 13. Exodus 12. 6 and 7 and 13. This is the Passover. Okay, so this is just prior to the 10th plague. Just prior to the 10th plague. Exodus chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. And then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter this lamb or this young goat at twilight, and they are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animals. Skip over to verse 13. Verse 13, But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now these plague narratives, this series of ten events, catastrophic events, each one in their own right, culminates and has a crescendo to the tenth event, which is the death of the firstborn son. Um, This is where the destroyer, the angel of death, uh, or God, all of which are given credit for this act in the scriptures. Sometimes it's named as the destroyer. Sometimes God, the, the authors kind of give God direct credit. Sometimes it's given uh, credit to this angel of death. All three are there in the scriptures. Uh, and so who actually is going through and doing this act is, is maybe up for debate. But here it is. The plague of the firstborn son. So the destroyer comes to bring death to the firstborn of every Egyptian household. I was meet, I was having. This is like total side note. I was having lunch with uh, uh, my Lutheran friend, and this week, and we kind of talked about like what we're going to be talking about, and he uh, like joked about a children's pastor telling this story and being like, "Any firstborns out there?" You know? <laughs> so this is like, if you wonder like what how, pastors' dark humor like, that's it. Like that's where it goes. So. Anyway, children's pastor, any firstborns out there? Okay, all right, raise your hand. All right, see you later. Okay, so um, anyway. (laughs) uh, Now, Israelite households, Israelite households, however, can avoid this fate by taking the blood of the lamb and wiping it on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over their house. Now, we're finding Jesus in Exodus. And a lamb who is slain we can find Jesus pretty easily there. Um, but I don't want to go too far, right? So, so let's, let's make a couple observations because I'm trying to put together a whole kind of package of how we see the Exodus. Uh, so before we get there, let's, let's think about just a couple of observations. First of all, the blood on the doorposts is not simply, does not simply function as a marker as if any colorful substance would do. Uh, in fact, the text says that the blood will be a sign for you. Now, the, the translation we read does not make this clear. Other translations do. But the blood is to be a sign for Israel. This, the blood will be a sign for you, talking to Israel. So, in other words, God, like this, this angel of death, this destroyer, God, knows which house is which doesn't just need like a colorful marker on the doorpost to know which one is which, right? The blood is a sign for Israel. And the blood is a sign for Israel of God's faithfulness. And I think that's really important. The blood is a sign for Israel of God's faithfulness to keep them and protect them from death. Okay, and I think it's going to build into the overall picture that I'm trying to build. Okay, that's the first observation. The blood is a sign for Israel of God's faithfulness to protect. Second, the lamb is not being punished. Sometimes we think about that, right? Sometimes we kind of wonder, like, what did the lamb ever do to deserve all of this? And so it's really important to understand that the lamb is not being punished. Instead, the lamb is a gift that provides the blood of salvation and the food for the covenant meal. Oh, come on, somebody. (laughs) The lamb is a gift, not punished, who provides blood for salvation and food for the covenant meal. Now, blood, in a very real sense, is the vitality of life. It is the symbol of life because it carries life. And so the blood of the lamb that was shed... was shed, therefore providing life for the creation, for new creation to come to Israel. And we can talk about this in new creation terms because the Exodus event was, in fact, an identity-forming event that kind of led to Israel having its own identity. Up to this point, the nation of Israel, as it grew, only saw themselves as an enslaved people right in Egypt. But the Exodus event provides sort of this autonomy, this freedom, this identity that we are a nation unto ourselves. We are God's people. So the Exodus event is an identity forming event. It's a new creation event for the people of Israel. And so the blood is shed. It provides life for new creation to come to Israel. The life, that was taken, the life of one that was taken so that the lives of many others may be saved. So the lamb is a gift that offers blood for salvation. It is not punished in a punitive sense. And then third, just to reiterate this, the lamb provides food for the covenant meal. And that is the Passover meal. The Passover meal becomes the feast for the people of Israel uh, because it is the picture of their salvation. Uh, They once were enslaved, they are now free, they once were nobody, they now have new identity, they have new creation, they have all of this kind of stuff. And so every year after this event, they have a Passover meal. And the lamb provides the food for the Passover meal. Um, And it becomes a symbol of salvation. I hope you're thinking about communion right now, right? This is... So the lamb provides food for the covenant meal. So keep this in our minds. The Passover is a sign of God's faithfulness to keep us from death. The lamb is not punished, but given as a gift that provides the covenant meal. Now, after the 10th plague, after this happens, in fact, the angel, the destroyer, God comes through. uh, The 10th plague comes to pass. All the firstborn of the uh, Egyptian households does, in fact, die. And so Pharaoh says to Moses, get your people out of here. And so that's what they do. The entire nation of Israel left Egypt and headed toward a new land as a free people. Now, in case you think this is akin to getting your family ready for vacation, it is not. Exodus chapter 12 says that 600,000 Israelite men left Egypt during the Exodus. Uh, That means that women and children likely were not included in that number. That puts conservative estimates. At somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million people leaving Egypt in the Exodus. Whoa, right? This is no small company of people. 1.5 million people leaving Egypt in the Exodus. So Pharaoh says, "Get your people out of here." As soon as they're out of there, Pharaoh changes his mind, chases after the Israelite army, who pursues them into the, into the wilderness. Israel comes to the Red Sea. So in front of them is an ocean. Behind them is the world's largest army intent on killing them. And this is what you call between a rock and a hard place, right? This is an impossible situation. And yet, nevertheless, God comes through once again, uh, tells Moses to hold out his staff over the waters. The waters part. uh, The sea is split. They cross over. uh, And before the army can get can pursue them and capture them. Uh, They are then drowned in the waters as they come down. Have you ever seen the cartoon uh, that says Moses as a baby? That's the caption. And Moses is sitting in a bathtub, but the waters are parted. Have you ever seen that little cartoon? It's like quite hilarious. It's like, ah, I can't get this guy clean because the water won't touch him. Anyway, so like this, you know, it's funny. So I hope you see it someday. Search it on the internet. I'm sure it's on. I should have had it. I should have brought it. I should have brought it this morning, but I didn't. So here we are. I'm talking about a cartoon. Sorry about that. Okay, so now many scholars and linguistic experts can that the first and some of the oldest language we have in all of scriptures is found in Exodus chapter 15, which is the first song of praise in the Bible. The first song of praise. Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Which is to say that by the time Exodus was written down, this song of praise had been around for a really, really long time. Exodus chapter 15. The song, I want to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. The song ends. Jeremy, I'm sorry to do this to you. We have all of 18 verses. I'm not going to read all 18 verses. I'm going to reference some. I'll give you the verse reference before I go. Let's start at the end, verse 18. Verse 18 says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. That's the ending note. That's the symbol crash at the end. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Let's go to the beginning, verse 1 and 2. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Go over to verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. Verse 13. With your unfailing love, you lead the people that you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to a sacred home. Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, reserved for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. In this ancient psalm, and some of the oldest language we have in all of the scriptures, God is praised as king. That's where it ends. You are the Lord who will reign forever and ever. So Yahweh, the God of the enslaved people who has freed them, is given praise as king over all of creation as was just proven in the plague's. King over all of creation. And then he is praised for mighty acts of rescue, coming against evil, leading people to a new land, and then dwelling with the people. And that is when our picture of salvation through the Exodus events comes to a completion. Church, I want you to hear this. Salvation is brought by exposing cultural gods as false and revealing Yahweh as the one true God. Then the lamb saves them from death through his blood that brings life and new creation. And then they leave Egypt as a free people, praising God for confronting evil, providing rescue, leading them to a new land, And God dwelling with them. This is salvation. This is the image of salvation that New Testament authors will will allude to. They will give imagery for. They will talk about it in these terms. all, All the time talking about salvation. Using and borrowing language from the Exodus. And so where do we find Jesus in all of this? I said at the beginning, the Exodus event provides a framework for understanding salvation. And so I want to say to you today, church, salvation begins when we begin to see that the gods in whom we had previously placed our trust are powerless to save. The gods in whom we had previously placed our trust are powerless to save. Now, of course, our culture does not assume that there is a pantheon of gods who each have their sliver of creation that they are uh, in charge of, are just as, as though like our ancient brothers and sisters would believe. But just the same, we have false gods nonetheless. And if we are going to truly be saved, we must come to recognize that the gods of power, wealth, youth, beauty, success, or etc., are all powerless to save. Are any one of those things in and of themselves bad things? Of course not. But when we place our trust in those things, when we live as though those are the most important things, as if we live as though those are the things that must be preserved above all else, then perhaps we have made a God out of them, and those gods must be slayed. If we are to truly be saved, they must be exposed as false. I didn't plan to say this, but I want to say it nonetheless. There's a, a singer-songwriter that I have come to love. His name is Ben Rector. I would I would commend his music to you. While most pop songs are trying to capture a moment of youth and eternalize it, right? You ever heard pop songs? that are just like, I'm young, we're young, life is great, let's stay here forever. This is the theme of lots and lots of songs. And like kind of making a God out of being young and beautiful. And Ben Rector this week released a song where the the main tagline is, you can't stay young forever. (laughs) And as somebody in their 40s, I'm like, amen, Ben, like (laughs) sing it, you know. And that's just like an example, I think, of how much, what I I appreciate about the song is that it's pushing up against sort of all these gods that we have made out of youth and beauty, right? And so while 90% of some some of the songs you hear are just trying to like capture and eternalize the moments of youth, there's another singer-songwriter who's just admitting you can't stay young forever. And what we need most in life is a steady love present in our lives. It's a beautiful song. I commend it to you. Um, and so we have this idea that like the, the cultural gods are revealed as false. And then the true God is revealed. And so what we have, the beauty of being able to see at our point in history, is that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, is the one who reveals God to us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so the first step in salvation is we must recognize that the false gods in our lives are powerless to save. And then recognize the true God who is revealed in Jesus. And so if we're going to turn from these false gods, we must also turn toward a true God who's revealed in Jesus and provides for us our salvation. If those false gods lead to death, we must place our trust in someone that is going to give life and new creation. And just as the Passover lamb is a sign of God's faithfulness to protect from death, so Jesus is the Passover lamb whose death brings us life. Amen? In fact, 1 Corinthians, the writer, the Apostle Paul, will say this explicitly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may uh, be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He'll go on to say, therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Apostle Paul specifically identifies Christ as the Passover lamb and then kind of plays with this picture of bread that is leavened and unleavened and says, let's not go with the old bread that was filled with malice and wickedness, but let's go with an unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, there's this sense in which the Passover lamb brings us from an old creation into a new creation. And again, let's keep in mind, the lamb is not punished in a vindictive sense, but offered as a gift and a sign of new creation. Where do we find Jesus? Jesus is the new Moses that leads us out of slavery to sin and death and into a new land, which is new creation. Remember how I said that this song of praise praises God as king for rescuing the people, confronting evil, bringing them into a new land and then filling that land with his presence. This is the book of Revelation. Revelation promises that heaven will come down on earth and that God will make a home among his people and all of creation will be filled with his presence. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the the end game of salvation. And so the Exodus event provides a framework to understand salvation. We see that the false gods are powerless to save. The true God is revealed to us in the Lamb who takes on our sin, takes our sin upon himself and responds with forgiveness, breaking the power of sin, rescuing us from death, so that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And thanks be to God. I suppose what is, the work has been done. that is the confession of the church is that the work of salvation has been completed in jesus christ what is yet to be done is for us to respond what is yet to be done is for us to choose to align our lives with the way of this suffering messiah so i don't know where you're at spiritually today i don't know um I can't identify every person in this room as, as, and where you're at exactly spiritually, but I would just encourage you as we look at this exodus and we see that a people once enslaved are made free, we can see that we have been enslaved by sin and can be set free. And not just from the consequences of sin, but, but we can be set free to live victoriously in Christ, to live as a free people. And I think that's God's intention for us so I would just encourage you to, to say a simple prayer. I'm not going to give you the words to say, but to pray a prayer and trusting your life and your heart to Christ. Um, that you might come to know him. And that he might be our savior for the work has been done. What is left is our response. So I'll say a word of prayer and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Gracious God, thank you for this story of the Exodus in the Old Testament that provides so much language and imagery for salvation and even how we understand it today. I pray, God, that through the movement of your Holy Spirit, that you would just speak to us, that you would be free to work in this place and that you would bring us to a place of trust in you. Um, And God, if there's anyone here today that has not yet come to a point of salvation, they maybe have heard about Jesus and Maybe they've attended church, but they've not yet kind of made a commitment to follow you, to walk in the way of the Messiah, to walk in the ways of Jesus, believing that these are the truly life-giving ways to live, then God, I pray that your spirit would be freely at work among us to bring people to that place. We also pray, God, that if there are those who have indeed placed their trust in you, and our living uh, as Christians, God, I pray that you would empower us, help us to know and to understand uh, more fully what it means to follow you uh, in our time and in our uh, our world. There's a lot of nuance often uh, to the Christian faith, and so we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom of what it means to walk in the way of Christ. And so be with us in these moments, and as we gather around the Lord's table today, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.